Once again, it's a blessing to be with everyone this morning and to be able to gather and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and encourage one another in doing so and and build each other up in the most holy faith and to be able to study His Word and learn more about Him and His will that He has for us. I pray that the studies we've had so far has been beneficial to you, and I pray that this one would be as well. Commend you again for being here. I know that this is a busy time of year, and you know me and Zoe have been talking throughout this uh, fall and winter about the weather. And I one time told her, I said, you know, I gotta watch myself because I I've been getting frustrated that it's not been cold yet. I've been looking forward to this, and then I remember everyone's got this weather. And now here it is, and now we complain about the cold, and I guess that's just how it is, but uh, it's probably a little more difficult to get out this morning, and so encouraged by you being here, and I pray your safety when you return home. I didn't talk to Billy about what he'd preach about. I, I don't think that we have overlapped or anything. If we did, then just consider repetition as a blessing from the Lord, but this is the time of year either the week before or as we are in the uh, first Sunday after, where we have New Year's resolution sermons. And some are um, cookie cutter, so to speak, where we just have a list of things we need to work on, and those are very beneficial and advantageous. I'm not going to do that this morning, but consider this a New Year's lesson, and hopefully we can uh, rededicate ourselves, dedicate ourselves further, take an audit spiritually, and figure out where we're lacking and what we're doing well in, what we need to improve on, what we need to add, what we need to take away, and hopefully this can be beneficial to you. In 2 Timothy 2, in verse 15, the Apostle Paul told the young evangelist Timothy to be diligent to present himself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, it's worthy to note the King James Version translates the word translated into be diligent in the New King James Version. The King James Version says study. And I think that that's implicit in the text. I think very much so included in this context as Timothy would speak about the gospel of Christ to some and remind them of how faithful he is, but that he can't deny himself. And so if you deny him, then he's going to deny you essentially. And False teachers are coming in. Their message is going to spread like cancer. And they deny the resurrection, specifically those teachers there. You you need to study God's Word. Not to mention, he says, rightly dividing the Word of truth. You can't just pick and choose what you want to believe and teach. And you also can't just use Scripture as proof text. You can't pull a verse out of its context. You've got to rightly divided, and so you've got to determine the context and you've got to apply God's Word, correct? So study to show yourself approved of God is certainly true, but that's not what the Word is. It is the Greek word spudadzo, which we'll note in a minute. And diligence is a better translation of it. Give effort, give diligence. And so study is a place that we give diligence in, but that's not what it's limited to. In the context of First Second Timothy in chapter 1, The Apostle Paul encouraged him to share in the sufferings of Christ. This man who is likely timid and needed a little more encouragement and push to do things which were more difficult and and aid him in times which would be uncertain and, and difficult, share with me in the suffering. Hold fast the pattern, chapter 1 and verse 13. 
stand strong in the grace in chapter 2. And he would go on to describe some various illustrations that would show what it means to stand strong in the grace, which connects with holding fast the pattern that you've got to endure hardship as a good soldier. You've, you've got to concern yourself with not the affairs of this life, but the person who enlisted you and what his will is and live to please him. You've got to compete according to the rules, verse 5. You've got to partake of the crops as well. So don't just be teaching what you're not practicing, but you study for yourself. And as you take heed to yourself into the doctrine, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, he says, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. You partake of it first, and then others partake of your effort. So be diligent is not just study, but to stand strong in the grace. Remind them of the gospel and the fact of Jesus' promise that we'll live with Him if we die with Him. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny Him, though, He'll deny us. So we've got to remain faithful because He will not be faithless. In the latter part of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, he speaks about you know vessels in a house and some for honor and some for dishonor. And if you cleanse yourself of the being a vessel of dishonor, you can be a vessel of honor useful for the Master's service. And some who are captivated by the devil's snare, they're actually working for him. You'd be a vessel of honor. That's pretty broad. He's telling him to be a faithful Christian. In chapter 3, he talks about perilous times and you need to endure and you need to grow in the Scriptures and remember that you have learned them from Paul and it's able to make you wise to salvation. All Scripture is possible. In chapter 4, you need to fulfill your ministry and preach the Word in season and out of season, so on and so forth. And so it includes study. And study is a, a really a basis of this diligence, but it's about discipleship. It's about living faithfully. It's about denying our flesh and sin and living according to the Spirit. It's about combating error and darkness, exposing it because we're light. It, it's all-encompassing when he says be diligent to present yourself approved to God, you must rightly divide the word of truth in your study, but also in your application. You've got to live by the book. Aren't we called to everything Timothy was called to? Aren't we called to everything Paul was called to? I'm not talking about his special appointment as an apostle, obviously. But he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Aren't we called to that? There are no... B-team or JV Christians, brethren. You know, often it's pointed out that God has no grandchildren, too. We're children of God, not His grandchildren. He's not lenient with us. When we look to heroes of faith like Paul and Timothy, do we look to them as if they had a little bit of an extra expectation than we do and we're called to a lower bar? Or do we realize the call to diligence in all of these matters is a call extended to us. How'd they do it though? In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, Paul says, by the grace of God I am what I am. And while he, including in that context, is speaking about his apostolic ministry, nonetheless, it covers everything Paul is. By the grace of God. He did it by God's grace. In Titus 2 and verse 11, Titus is told by Paul that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Paul did it by grace. Timothy did it by grace. Everyone we read about, from Genesis to Revelation, 
men and women of faith did it by God's grace. He strengthened them. And that grace has appeared to me and you. What is our problem then? We're called to the same bar. We're called to the same standard, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul tells Timothy, be diligent. That's it. Be diligent. You have every tool you need. You have the, you have the Christ. You have the Son of God. You have the Holy Spirit. You've got God the Father, the Creator of the universe on your side. You're lacking in nothing. Be diligent. I want to read to you a quote, somewhat lengthy, but it drives the point home. Diligence is the panacea for all diseases of the Christian life. It is the homely virtue that leads to all success. It is a great thing to be convinced of this, that there are no mysteries about the conditions of healthy Christian living, but that precisely the same qualities which lead to victory in any career to which a man sets himself do so in this. That on the one hand, we shall never fail if in earnest and saving the crumbs of moments we give ourselves to the work of Christian growth. And that on the other hand, no fine emotions, no select moments of rapture and communion will ever avail to take the place of dogged perseverance and prosaic hard work which wins in all other fields and wins and is the only thing that does win in this one too. If you want to be a strong Christian, you must bend your back to the work and give all diligence. No one goes to heaven in his sleep. No man becomes a vigorous Christian by any other course than giving all diligence. It is a very lowly virtue. It is like some of the old wives' recipes for curing diseases with some familiar herb that grows at every cottage door. People will not have that. But if you bring them some medicine from far away, very rare and costly, and suggest to them some course out of the beaten rut of ordinary honest living, they will jump at that. Quackery always deals in mysteries and rare things. The great physician cures diseases with simples that grow everywhere. A pennyworth of some familiar root will cure an illness that nothing else will touch. It is a homely virtue, but if in its homeliness we practiced it, this church and our, our souls would wear a different face from what it and they do today. It's not special. It's not in small and short supply. It's, it's not a spiritual gift. It's it's not a matter of miraculous power. It's, it's a homely virtue. It is at your door. It is at my door. Give diligence. If we're going to be called, or going to, to be what we're called to be, we must be giving all diligence. That's it. That's going to be your key in 2022. What is diligence? Martin Gingrich gives the noun spude, translated diligent, Earnest commitment and discharge of an obligation or experience of a relationship. Eagerness, earnestness, diligence, willingness, and zeal. And, and the verb which is translated into be diligent of 2 Timothy 2.15 is to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation to be zealous or eager to take pains and make every effort be conscientious. I think we understand what diligence is, but be impressed by how it's used in the New Testament. The noun is translated in Luke 1 and verse 39 when the angel told Mary about being with child and that Elizabeth was six months with child. It says Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. That's spude, the noun, to a city of Judah. 
when Paul spoke about Titus having similar feelings for the church in Corinth, he said, but thanks be to God who has put the same earnest care, spude, the noun, for you into the heart of Titus. When Paul and Barnabas were met by the pillars in Jerusalem, and they realized that they were working in the same gospel as they were, they desired only that we should remember the poor. Paul says, the very thing which I also was eager, spudazzo, to do. In Ephesians 4, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul encourages us to be endeavoring, spudazzo, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In his closing letter to Timothy, as we have been reading from, he told Timothy to do your utmost, spudazzo, to come before winter. And then lastly, in 2 Peter 1 and in verse 15, nearing the end of his life, Peter said, Moreover, I will be careful, Spudazzo, to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Diligence, brethren. Regarding our obligation to follow Christ, are we doing so with haste and earnest care? Are we being eager? Are we endeavoring? Are we doing our utmost? Are we being careful to carry out and discharge our obligation in Christ? Only you can answer that question. We need to be diligent, and the rest will take care of itself. But how does that look? How does this haste and earnest care and eagerness and endeavoring and doing our utmost and being careful really look? What does Paul mean? Be diligent to present yourself approved of God. Let me suggest to you, firstly, that diligence is reflected in our daily attitude. Really a, a parent of diligence, if you will, is sincere conviction and desire. So diligence is not an end of itself. You can be diligent in something, but if you're lacking the desire, if you're lacking the proper thing, if you're lacking the proper focus, it really doesn't do anything for you. It's the means to an end of being approved to God. You know, this time of year, a lot of people set out schedules and they make lists and they make resolutions, but those lists and those schedules mean nothing if the desire is not at the back of them. It's reflected in our daily attitude. We need to understand that the proper attitude will precede any proper action. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 1 and verse 2? This blessed man who was not like these ungodly people He's blessed and his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates on it day and night. The delight preceded the meditation. If you do not delight in the law of the Lord, you will not meditate on the law of the Lord. Likewise, in Psalm 122, in verse 1, David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Going into the house of the Lord was preceded by being glad to do that very thing. And so I think in diligence, we've got to gain our proper attitude. And, and the proper attitude is only going to come through the proper perspective. You see, the gospel of health and wealth, which many have the proper attitude about, or, or a positive attitude about, I should say, not the proper one, it's, it's false doctrine, but many have a positive attitude about the gospel of health and wealth because it means good things for me and my flesh. And so their improper perspective has led to false doctrine. Our proper attitude that will lead to diligent effort must come from the proper perspective. Consider with me in Galatians 6 and verse 14, the perspective of Paul and his attitude reflected in that perspective when he said, in contrast to the Judaizing teachers 
who are boasting in the circumcision of their disciples and others. God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. His boast is in the cross and in a symbol of shame and suffering. But likewise, he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Perspective, brethren. Philippians 3 highlights that all the more. When in verse 7 of Philippians 3, he says, what things were gained to me, these have counted loss for Christ. Things that were seemingly positive. He was the man, according to the Jews. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. People knew Saul of Tarsus. He counted that as loss. To gain what? Among other things, the power of His resurrection. Notice the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Boasting in the cross. Taking joy in the message of the cross. It's power to us. Counting all things that may be good for loss to share in suffering. How do we gain that attitude? When people ask us to sacrifice our time and our energy, when there's an exhortation to make sacrifice, to worship faithfully, to raise our family and our children, to lead our our spouses and our marriages, so on and so forth, when sacrifice is the name of the game, and that's exactly what it means to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, how do we have a good attitude about it? Perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 16, this is what the Apostle Paul said in a context of his apostleship, his ministry, being the cause of his suffering. Sacrifice. He says, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are seen are eternal. This perspective leading to positive attitude and sacrificial living carries over into the sixth chapter when he's speaking about his ministry and how it's without blame, and he commends himself and the other apostles based on these things, he reaches a point in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 8 where he speaks some paradoxes, seeming contradictions. And it's all because of his spiritual perspective. He says, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known. Notice this, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Perspective. I lose something as a sacrifice to gain Christ. Perspective. I have nothing, I have gained all things. Brethren, diligence won't just happen. It takes training. We can give effort if we have the proper attitude. Do you struggle sometimes to sacrifice your free time? Alter your schedule so that you can study your Bible daily. That you can pray daily. Have you ever had to change a job 
or have an uncomfortable conversation with your boss because the work schedule was not lining up with the worship schedule? Have you ever had to sacrifice a relationship with someone you love to maintain your relationship with Christ? Have you ever felt a sense of dishonor coming at you from the world because you don't look like the rest of them, you don't live like the rest of them, you don't sound like the rest of them? How do we have a positive attitude about any of that? Perspective. And it's not until we have that perspective that we'll have that positive attitude that then we will have diligence. This is what Paul was speaking to, John was speaking to rather in 1 John 5 and verse 3 about the commandments. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. A lot of people view God's commandments as burdensome. We don't. Why? Perspective. Attitude. They are a blessing, as Jesus said in Matthew 11 and verse 30. My yoke is easy and my, underst- and my burden is light. We need to understand that. It should not be like pulling teeth. We should not be dragged to live a life of righteousness in Christ. It should not be hard to give diligence if we have that proper perspective leading to that proper attitude. Diligent people have that proper attitude. I'm going to tell you it goes further into our use of time. Diligence is an abstract concept concept that will translate into practical living. And it's reflected in the use of our time. Remember the word uh, spude, the noun. Arton Gingrich gives the definition swiftness of movement or action, haste and speed. And so the opposite of diligence is slow, delay, procrastination. Consider this quote. Tomorrow and tomorrow is the opiate with which sluggards and cowards set conscience asleep And as each tomorrow becomes today, it proves as empty of effort as its predecessors. And when it has become yesterday, it adds one more to the solemn company of wasted opportunities which wait for a man at the bar of God. We can't put it off for tomorrow. That's not diligence. We make haste to do what God calls us to do. The Apostle Paul highlights in, I keep saying that, James highlights in James chapter 4 this opposite of diligence. This really a procrastination of spiritual things. When he says, come now you say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this and that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. What's ironic is that these people were saying today and tomorrow, not that today and tomorrow I will do what the Lord wants me to do. I will study more. I will pray more. I will worship more. I will grow more. They were saying today or tomorrow we will live to do something secular, completely opposite of spiritual. And it's not that buying and selling and making a profit was sinful. James is not saying that. It's their planning in negligence of spiritual that comes into this. They were arrogant and they presumed to have tomorrow. That was sinful. But in verse 17, he says, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You made plans to go to a city, spend a year there and do nothing but work. That was your focus. That was your priority. That was your way to use your time. And it was at the expense of doing the Lord's will. You knew it was good to do it. You didn't plan for it. 
You put yourself in a difficult situation. You might have even said the thing, I have no time for this, but it's because you didn't plan for it. But oftentimes, our planning is today or tomorrow will grow. Today or tomorrow, we'll, we'll be better Christians. And what we actually do that for is to pursue the physical at expense of the spiritual. And we really convince ourselves to think that time will be available and we will use that time for what we know is good. But when today becomes tomorrow, it doesn't happen. There's always another tomorrow in our mind. May it not be so. Diligence is reflected in the use of our time. Remember Felix in Acts 24 and verse 25. He says, go away for now to Paul when he spoke of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment. He says, when I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. That cannot be how we live our life. How many of us are guilty of this poor and ungodly use of time? I know I have been. We need to ask ourselves. How many times have we said we, we just were too busy as a family to study together and to pray together? When our kids get older and things settle down more, we're going to have some time. That's not how it works. We keep saying it and things get busier and busier and busier. You know, it's been told to me before, you know, before we had kids, me and Zoe, you know, it's never going to be the right time. You know, you're, you're never going to have enough time. Financially, you're never going to be secure enough to where now it's time to have kids. You, you need to just have kids. And then you adjust. Well, it's, it's similar to spiritual things. It's just more important. It's never enough time. There's never the perfect time. But it is time now and always. Diligence is reflected in time. How many times have you reached a, a difficulty in your study or something was spoken to you that you didn't know before and, and it kind of is in contrast to how you're living? And, and you think, that's important. I need to study that out. I need to be sure that I'm doing right. And you say, I need to study this more. But you kind of say that and put it off on the back burner. Diligence says, I'm not going to sleep tonight until I've resolved this problem. I'm going to pray about this because my soul depends upon it. I'm going to put my nose in the good book. That's what diligence is. We sing from time to time. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to Him. That's diligence. It's reflected in our use of time, which is what Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 15. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Brethren, we need to redeem the time. But I think it's important to know what Paul is saying. Time is key. We need to redeem it lest it slip away. But what time is he talking about? He uses the Greek word kairos. And there's another word in the Greek, chronos. And they're not the same. They can be used synonymously in context, but they're not the exact same. R.C. Trench in his synonyms of the New Testament says that chronos is time contemplated simply as such, the succession of moments. Kairos is time as it brings forth its several births. So chronos, it will thus appear, embraces all possible kairos, and being the larger, more inclusive term, may be often used where kairos would have been equally suitable, though not the converse. In other words, chronos is the general, kairos is more specific. Jesus made the distinction in Acts chapter 1, 
and in verse 6 and 7, when they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, It is not for You to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. Times is chronos, seasons is kairos. Also, R.C. Trench in his synonyms in the New Testament says that the times, chronos, are contemplated merely under the aspect of their duration. But the seasons, kairos, are the joints or articulations of these times. So chronos is time in general. It's the time we have. Every second is chronos. And then when we have an opportunity, that's kairos. He's not saying that you can't sleep because you've got to redeem the time. You've got to study every single second of the day. You've got to be talking to someone about Christ every single second of the day. That would be impossible. He's not saying redeem every second. He's saying redeem every opportunity. Redeem the kairos. And so he tells them in verse 15 how that would be accomplished. Don't be unwise, or rather walk circumspectly, not as fools, uh, but as wise, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The way you're going to redeem the time is by walking circumspectly. It's the Greek word akrobos, and Strong defines it as exactly. Vincent's word study says, look how exactly you walk is the literal translation. So it's revised, look carefully how you walk. And he does mention circumspectly is better rendered carefully. It means exactly accurately. He's saying walk accurately, exactly Redeeming the kairos, the opportunities. But I think the translation into the English word circumspectly paints a picture for us. It's from the Latin circumspectus, from circumspere, meaning look around, from circum, around, about, and specier, to look. He's saying have your head on a swivel, looking round about all the time, so that when an opportunity is there, you see it. And when you see it, Buy it up because it's fleeting. Redeem every opportunity. You know, I believe in John the fourth chapter, this comes to my mind when Jesus is going uh, on His way and he, he could go a different way, but it says that it's necessary that He go through Samaria. It was only necessary, not geographically, but because it was the Father's will. He had an appointment in Samaria. And it may not have even been someone specific. He just was going to go through Samaria. He was going to meet a Samaritan and and speak about the Gospel to that Samaritan and emphasize that there is a time coming where all will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in Jerusalem, not over here on this mount, but all in spirit and in truth. And what he did is he found an opportunity at Jacob's well. And he redeemed that opportunity. That's what Paul is saying. You've got to redeem the time. And so diligence reflected in use of time knows that the excuse there just isn't enough time or I don't have enough time is a lie. There's always enough time. It comes down to how we use our time. How much TV do we watch? We don't have enough time. But we're going to watch TV. How much time do we spend on our phones? And even more seriously, how much time do we stand paralyzed in anxiety? I know I need to talk to my friend about the Gospel. I've had countless opportunities, but it's just too hard for me. We're squandering opportunities. He says, redeem the time. Diligence knows those excuses are lies. And he says, redeem the time because the days are evil. 
When you decide not to study because you want to watch that TV show, Satan is given an outlet to fill your mind with sinful activity. When we decide that it's not convenient for us as a family to sit down and study together because we've got to go here, we've got to go there, and we've got too many irons in the fire, Satan is wasting your time. And really, there's no such thing as wasted time. It's always used. That's a matter of perspective. Our wasted time is the devil's reward. The late sideline reporter famously said as he neared his life due to cancer, that time is something that cannot be bought, it cannot be wagered with God, and it is not an endless supply. Time is simply how you live your life. Brethren, that's true. Sometimes those in the world speak with more wisdom than the children of light. But notice what Jesus said in John 9 and verse 4. I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. That should be our life. That should be how we live. If we're diligent, our use of time will show it. And lastly, along the similar lines, if we're diligent, it will be reflected in our use of energy. Where you have the parent of diligence is attitude, it leads to diligence, it precedes the proper action, and then time is really an expression of our diligence. We're using our time wisely, we're buying up the opportunities. Really, energy is the essence of diligence. It's what diligence is all about. It requires energy, it requires effort. The very presence of diligence implies the exertion of energy. I think this is why in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and in verse 10, in his quest, if you will, for happiness and fulfillment under the sun, the preacher Solomon, the son of David, wrote in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. But be impressed with this context. If you're not there yet, turn there in Ecclesiastes 9. Back in verse 1, speaking in a context of universal death, he says, I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it to all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. And this is what he's talking about that's the same. This is an, e an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the Son of Men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. All die. That is the undefeated, save Christ, enemy. All die. And so notice verse 4. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. While you're living, there's hope. To this degree, the living dog is better than a dead lion. Why? For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Whether good or evil, when you're dead, that's it. There is no more hope. So what should be our response as those who are living? Go. Verse 7. Go. Diligence. 
Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works, that is, those of enjoying your labor. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife with which you love all the days of your vain life which He has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and that is the labor with which, uh, which you perform under the sun. If you've got life, use it, He's saying. Be content, be comforted, seek companionship. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, verse 10, or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. This is when he says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. Time and chance have unto them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. And you know, the context of Ecclesiastes is finding fulfillment under the sun without God. That's why he reaches his conclusion. We'll read in a second. And so the world may take this as wisdom as well. If I'm living, I have hope. People who are dead, they can't do anything. They can't love. They can't. Delight, they can't even hate. It's done. They have a share in nothing under the sun. So I've, I've got to go find my spouse. I, I've got to go repair my friendship. I've got to find the job of my dreams. I've got to work while I can work. Maybe that's a worldly perspective. He says, whatever your hands finds to do, do it with your might. Take advantage of now while you're living. But apply that to the context of the entirety of the book. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the context of this entire book. Life is vain without God. Life with God is life fulfilling its purpose. While you have life, fear God and keep His commandments with all your might, is what he's saying. That's diligence. You know, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, when we read what is called the Shema that is, that is uh, spoken and recited in the morning and the evening by Jews even to this day. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I want to tell you that there's something deep and profound in his use of the word all before each thing. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength. He said the Lord our God is one. Not two, not multiple, one. And he's speaking this to the Israelites, that generation who would inhabit the Canaan land filled with idols. And so notice in verse 12 what he says. Beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, plural, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, not some of it and others reserved for these false gods. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Lord is one, and so your only service is to Him. You can't even dabble in idolatry. 
for the Israelites, not even so much as have a romance with one who is involved in idolatry. You give God your all entirety. You know, it's no wonder in Colossians 3 and verse 5 that the Apostle Paul said that covetousness is idolatry. When we read Deuteronomy 6 and verses 4 through 5, we need to stress the oneness of God and the all, every fiber of our being, all of our energy. That means not some energy for work and then some energy for God. Not some energy for our marriage and some energy for God. Not some energy for recreation and some energy for our God. But every second, every day, all our energy is focused on Him. The Lord our God is one. And He created us to follow Him in that way. And when we start dividing, we dissipate our energy. In Matthew 6 and verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and man. We say, okay, I'm still faithful to God. I'm not as strong as I could be, but when I work enough to reach this promotion, or lay up enough retirement, or we get our kids through these sporting events, then we'll have enough time. Then we'll have enough energy to expend. That's not how it works. Because you may be justifying your actions and your distractions through some energy focused toward God, but God is one and He requires all of it. Covetousness is idolatry. And when you dissipate your energy that way, it begins to be insufficient for God and ineffective. You know, I think we're all aware of the common view by employers that they don't want their employees to have two full-time jobs. I think it's possible and people have done it, but it's not the preference at the very least. And some employers, they won't allow it at all. You don't work two full-time jobs. You choose one because if you're working here full-time and then you're working there full-time, I'm not getting all of you. And we understand the logic of that. That's how it works with God too. We can't expect to be the Christian God calls us to be with divided energy. All our energy needs to be focused toward Him. But understand what I'm not saying here. Someone says, how can I be a good employee then? How, how can I be a good husband? How can I be a good, a good father? So on and so forth. The list continues. If I'm supposed to focus all my energy on Him, there comes that perspective in again. What we mean by this is that nothing in our lives comes at the expense of discipleship. And discipleship goes beyond these walls. Consider in Colossians 3 and verse 18 what Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If your view 
of discipleship in Christianity is watered down to merely the assembly and Bible studies you're a part of, when you pray and when you read Scripture and when you sing songs, you don't know what discipleship is. Discipleship is Christ living in us, Galatians 2 and verse 20, in every aspect of our lives, which means when you're at work, if you're giving the one God all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, you don't steal time, you don't steal resources, you work as to the Lord. When you have a dispute with your wife or with your husband, and there's a question of what you're going to do next, you think about what would be pleasing to the Lord. And you give your energy to Him, and your wife benefits from it. Your husband benefits from it. When we're talking about diligence, it pervades every aspect of our lives. Everything we think and everything we do, from work to school, recreation, relationships, so on and so forth, we have to be thinking about the Lord and His will for us and how much we should be loving Him. I think we wonder sometimes why we're not growing, why we feel that something's missing, and it's probably because we're expending too much of our energy in places that are not important. We have too many irons in the fire. You know, someone says it's not sinful to be doing this, that, and the other, to be you know, having all of these goals that I'm achieving and seeking to achieve all at the same time. There's nothing inherently wrong with them. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 12, lay aside every sin and the weight which so easily ensnares us, distinct from sin. It may be that it's weighing you down. Diligence is reflected in our energy. And if we don't have enough energy for God, we're doing it wrong. We need to have everything focused through that lens. There isn't a thing that can help you become a better Christian if you are not being diligent. Nothing else can replace earnest effort. So it doesn't matter what your plans are, maybe to study more this year, to read the Bible daily, go through a daily Bible reading, and you've scheduled all of this kind of stuff. You're going to be better in X, Y, Z spiritually. That's excellent. That's great. Don't let your diligence dissipate from January 1st on throughout the year. we got to do it now, and we've got to give it our all. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, we want to offer you an invitation to do so. It may be that until this time you haven't been sure about what to do. Maybe you've known before, but it's clicked now, and you know that time is running out, and you need to confess Christ before men and be baptized into His death for the remission of your sins. You can do so now. Give diligence. Make haste. Resolve to do His will and don't delay. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with along those lines, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.